Hey everyone, I'm Andrea Ferretti, and this is episode 37 of Yoga Land. Today we've got Jason back in the studio to answer your questions. Hi, Jason. Hello. When you say studio, do you mean our daughter's room? <laughs> I was sort of hoping I'd get a laugh from you on that one. We're going to answer some questions that are mostly from teachers and are related to teaching, teaching yoga yeah. today. So the first question comes from Northern Lindsay, and her question is about using Sanskrit while teaching. She says, I've taught at studios that have required it. I've taught at others that have asked we do not use Sanskrit and ones that sit in between and let the choice be at the discretion of the teacher. What are your thoughts on the benefits and or possible downsides of using Sanskrit in the classroom? So first, let me address this, which is I think that you're if you are at a studio and that studio requires you to teach Sanskrit or encourages you to not Sanskrit, to not use Sanskrit. I think those are reasonable requests. You know, I think that it's okay for studios to have a certain house style, to have certain preferences. And I think that one of the challenges as yoga teachers is we sort of, we don't want our rights infringed upon. We don't want our personal knowledge or our personal creativity to be infringed upon. So I think all of us yoga teachers in some ways want to make the rules, but if it's not our studio, we don't get to make all of the rules. And I wouldn't have felt that 10 years ago, you know, but that's something that I have matured into to say, okay, you know what, in this location, they prefer X, Y, or Z. If I, as a yoga teacher, want to teach in this location, I understand that's part of the process. And I think that one of the reasons that a studio will do that is, the studio world is very difficult to operate and it's very difficult to have to, as a studio owner or manager, it's very difficult to give your student base a even somewhat consistent experience. So I think it's healthy in situations to have certain house styles so that students have certain expectations that are present across all of the classes. Make sense? Yeah. Okay. I also think it's really preferable, to be honest, to leave it to the teacher's discretion. But if a studio doesn't leave it to the teacher's discretion, I understand that and I respect that. So now when it comes to the question of what do I think are the upsides, what do I think are the challenges to Sanskrit? I think that the upsides largely outweigh the downsides. For me, I use both. For me, what I try to do is include as much of the language of yoga to provide a contextualization and to provide a connection with time and place and past. You know, as a yoga teacher, a yoga practitioner, we're doing something, granted it changes over the years, but it's nice to have certain lineage, certain connections. I sort of jokingly say this, but I, I'm serious about this, is like, if you were a pastry chef and you were learning to make a croissant, you wouldn't start calling it a flaky butter bun. Oh my gosh. I have another example. Okay. Ballet. Sure. Okay. I studied ballet as a child my whole life. 
we were little kids using quote unquote French, you know, because because it's part of the discipline. <laughs> that's the language, and and it wasn't a big deal. I actually always find it confounding that it's that some people find it so difficult to go into a class and to hear Sanskrit. Yeah, I think it's an I think it's an odd issue to be to be honest. But I'm going to take another step, which is to say that any language that a teacher is using that is not the common language of that culture, I think should also be interpreted. So including uh, anatomical language. So, you know, one of the things for me, even though I have a decent understanding of anatomy, is I try to minimize clinical language. I try not to, I'm not going to say the distal head of the fifth metatarsal. I'm going to say the base of your small toe. Mm -hmm. That being said, so my point on this is, I like to use utita trikonasana triangle pose. I will tend to use both. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I also don't think it's too much, like just to be totally transparent, I don't think it's too much to expect that teachers learn some basic Sanskrit. Like no teacher is teaching more than 50 or 60 poses yeah. in a class you know, make flashcards, learn 50 names. Mm -hmm. It's part of the discipline. Mm -hmm. Like if we can't learn 50 names of poses, then I'm going to question whether or not we've learned enough about other aspects of this discipline to take the mantle of a teacher. Mm -hmm. All of that being said, I don't think it's the world's biggest deal. Right. You know, if we look at the vast world of what Hatha Yoga is, all of us, myself included, are just picking a slice to teach. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't teach every aspect of Hatha Yoga mm -hmm. and no one does. Anyone that thinks they do, do doesn't actually know the vast scope of what this discipline entails. Like no one out there is having their students cut their, their frenum with a copper wire. Yeah. So that's it. Yeah. We're not. Yeah. Just to add to that, I, I think it's interesting um, having talked to people over the past year that in school settings and in corporate settings, it's often discouraged, you know, we're often discouraged from using Sanskrit. And I think that makes total sense when you're in those settings. They're just a little more formal. They're a little broader. It's someone hasn't necessarily elected to go into the yoga studio setting. So you want to make people more comfortable. And that I think that's really the, the reason to use English, right? Yeah. I mean, I think that we have to be educators and and we have to be pragmatic mm -hmm. and we have to identify the situation that we're in and figure out what is the most pragmatic way to teach this discipline and at the same time some basic language is actually part of the discipline yeah okay nina yoga life says how do you continue teaching and practicing when you're battling a variety of injuries? What's the best way to practice self-care and still teach to the best of my ability? Well, Nina Yoga Life, I'm going to give you my long-term answer, which is just put some tape on it and get back out there. <laughs> just wrap it up with some tape and get back out there. Spoken like a true former hockey player. I mean, this is so hard. I go, I really go back and forth. And what I tell someone to do is not often what I personally do. I am more likely to tell people to back off. I am less likely to back off. That's both because I'm used to it. I've 
done physical things my whole life that uh, that I've just dealt with a lot of injuries. I've dealt with a lot of significant injuries. And when I'm not practicing, the quality of my psycho-emotional landscape goes a little bit downhill. So for me, and I sort of say this, my, I, I bring this up quickly with my brother. My brother, as you know, does Ironmans and he's got no business doing them. He's wrecked, but I would never take, try to take running away from a runner. I don't care if your knees hurt. You know what I mean? Like, I don't want this to sound cavalier, but I would exchange a certain physical sacrifice of my body for a psycho-emotional stability and gratification. All of that said, I try not to make it one way or the other, okay? And it, I'm gonna, now I want to try and give some pragmatic advice. And it's very difficult and very frustrating to do yoga with certain injuries. And it's very difficult and very frustrating to do vinyasa yoga with certain injuries because there's so many movements, there's so many transitions, and there's so many asymmetrical poses. So to me, I think the first thing that we have to do is identify where the injury is and then start to figure out what can we do in spite of the injury. And so sometimes what we have to be able to do is we have to be able to practice in a very different way. So for example, I'll have people or I've had myself like a shoulder impingement where every time you do chaturanga or anytime you do an arm overhead pose, there's fierce pain in the shoulder. Well, guess what style of yoga ain't going to work? Vinyasa yoga. Does that mean that you can't do seated poses? Does that mean you can't meditate? Does that mean you can't breathe? Does that mean you can't like go for a jog and then and then cool down? No. Yeah. So I think that I think that it pays off to figure out how do you not make the rest of your body suffer mm -hmm. because your shoulder is suffering, and how do you figure out how do you make yourself adaptable? How do you make your yoga practice adaptable without being too hard headed, and say, okay, you know what? Maybe for a couple months, I got no arm overhead motions, I got no chaturangas, so I have to be industrious. And I have to figure out what can I do. And there is a ton of stuff that you can do. Yeah. But flow's probably out. Group classes are out. And I just want to acknowledge that's really difficult and really frustrating. It's really annoying. But oftentimes we have to take the specific postures or styles that are, that are temporarily offensive to the body. Mm-hmm. And then we got to take that out for a period of time. I don't mean to sound like a Pollyanna, but I actually think it's um it's pretty important to go through things like this as a teacher for a few reasons. I think first it helps you relate to your students who may have be going through injuries or may um, have just different levels of functioning than you have in your body. And I think, like Jason said. When you're forced to learn a different way to practice, it just makes you mentally more flexible about things. And, you know, spoiler alert, we're all going to lose, you know, this wonderful, incredibly physical body Excuse capability me. that we're in. We are, yeah, know. you know, and that's why like I'm on the yogic path. As you get older, it gets more and more toward being seated and meditating. 
you know, there's a reason for that. And so anything that I have gone through in my body, in my life, that I've really, that I've, it's been really painful, whether it's emotionally or mentally or physically, and I've really had to make adjustments has ultimately helped me down the line. So without a doubt, not to put a silver lining on it, but it is part of it. I mean, the last, last part real quick about it, which is just to say that everyone that has a body is going to have issues with body. They're going to have challenges with the body. Yeah. And it's not abnormal. It's not the end of a practice. It's it's a phase. Right. It's right. a phase. That's also very helpful phase. to remind people. It's a phase. It's a phase. Yeah. Yeah. Skater Joe 61. Skater Joe. Yeah, I love that. Of course. Name. She asks, how do you deal with the challenge of giving individual attention while in a group setting? Not adjustments, but helping a student discover their version of the pose. What I want to say about this is I, I talk about this in my teacher trainings a lot, which is when I go into a class as the teacher, I have a plan for what I want to execute in that class, Right. I have a plan for what I want to teach, but I also have a plan for what I, as a yoga teacher, want to get better at doing. And in any class that I teach, I am thinking about my own skill set as a teacher. And I'm thinking, like, what is one thing I can try to do less of as a teacher today? What is something I can try to do more of as a teacher today? And this is one of the things that I am, I go through cycles where I really try to get better at, which is to individualize people's experience. Not necessarily just adjustments, but verbal communication, seeing people, making eye contact, using names. When you say helping them find their own version of the pose, I mean, that's, that's sort of a broad thing. I mean, I can, I can interpret that in a lot of different ways. But I think that the broader topic, as I'm as I'm understanding this question, is how do you make individuals feel seen within a group context? And you as the teacher, how do you not just get off on your own brilliant, amazing trip and settle in and see the people that are in the room? And I'll be the first one to say, literally, I have taught large classes before where after class, I saw someone that I knew well, and I had no idea they were in that class. And I thought to myself, dude, were you, you were paying no attention to the people that were actually there. Mm. You were teaching this yoga thing mm. and it was coming from your mind and whatever, and maybe it was good, but you did, but I didn't actually relate mm. to the people there because I didn't notice that so-and-so was in my physical presence for 90 minutes, right? And so I guess what I'm trying to get at with this is this is something that that is a challenge for everyone. And I think that the way you do it is you acknowledge that it's a challenge and you try to engage with people from beginning to end, right? Is is try to be there a little bit early, learn names, say hi, engage. You don't have to like, I don't engage people socially that much, 
but in that room, just make contact, make your presence felt, see people. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's, but it's hard. And for me, it's like, I used to think about this. I used to think about this with, with certain teachers. I've, I mentioned Rodney in the last thing. If I were to think, if I were to name a list of what I felt in my era of working with him was his greatest skill set, I would say his eyes. And what I meant by that is he saw what was happening in that room. Mm. He wasn't just orating from the mountaintop, right? He saw what happened. He saw that my left leg didn't straighten as well as my right leg, Mm -hmm. even though there were 60 people in the room. He saw that. So how did he instruct that? Like, how did you know that? So he would he would say, Jason, left leg a little straighter. Oh, okay. So it so wouldn't he, interrupt the flow of the teaching. No. But he would potentially so, call out an individual yes. adjustment. And then, I mean, what's interesting is probably 10 other people benefited from that sure. instruction. And then someone else who's <clears throat> neurotic, you know, felt like called out because he said, reach through your arm. Or someone else that's neurotic, and I can say that because I'm neurotic felt left out because they didn't get that verbal adjustment. You know what I mean? Mm. So there, there is a little bit of a shadow side mm. to the personalization. Mm-hmm. There is. Mm-hmm. There is. Because you're going to leave someone out and you know what? That's life. For me mm-hmm. personally, that's life. Yeah. As a teacher, I can't worry that much about it. You know? All of that being said, I think to think about as you're teaching, there's two layers. There's the group phenomenon and there's the individuals within that group phenomenon. And you sort of want to have both cameras. It's like a it's like a two camera shoot. That one camera is that consistent flow, that's the sequence, that's the oration, that's the theme, that's the focal point. And then that second one is, well what are the individuals doing and can I see them? So I think that it starts there. It's actually seeing them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, and I and I mean that in more than one way. It's like really seeing, seeing a body, seeing the eyes, trying to hone in and pay attention. And the last thing I want to say about this is that's not just for the student's sake, that's for the teacher's focus sake. Hmm. In that example where I say, oh, you know, I didn't notice so and so was in class, I wasn't focused on what was hap- I was focused on my own process and my own concept and that's easy for me but I wasn't focused on actually the individuals carrying that out and I know for me that's always been a learning curve that's a harder thing to execute yeah yeah i'm going to add one thing I, I hope it's helpful and that is skater joe that i wonder if perhaps you're putting a little bit too much responsibility on yourself yeah, when you say, yeah. you know, trying to help a student discover their own version of the pose. And that's, I just say that in a way to kind of liberate you from that responsibility. If you think about finding your own version of the pose in the past, perhaps a teacher led you in that direction, but probably when you really felt like, oh, my triangle pose, like I feel triangle pose today, it was probably a series of many instructions over time and you practiced it and you just suddenly felt it in your own experience. Yeah. Let me, when I said neurotic earlier, I mean, maybe that sounded a little judgmental, but let me say this about what I expect of myself as a student. What I expect of myself as a student is that I'm not super needy of the teacher in a group environment. What I can sort of go close, closer with that is when, for me in martial arts training, I go to group classes but I also take private sessions with the teacher. Mm. And in the group classes, 
I don't expect the teacher to manage every aspect of my personal experience. I expect the teacher to give a good class and then to also give the space for me to go through the learning process. And the learning process means you don't already know it. And you got to learn to walk. You got to learn to crawl. And you sort of have to do a little bit of that and you have to make your own mistakes. I wouldn't want the teacher to feel in a group setting like he has to manage every one of the things I do and every one of the errors that I make. Because I don't think in a group context that that's an appropriate environment. Mm. So what I also do is occasionally one-on-ones and I go in every time with a list. And I say, these are the things that, I'm, that are coming up for me in the group class. These are the things I'm struggling with. These are the things that I'm having questions about. These are the places where I'm getting beat. So let's look at three or four of these things in the next hour. And I sort of, to some degree, because you brought this up of not wanting to put pressure on themselves, like I will tell everyone listening, I don't know anyone on the planet that puts more pressure on themselves to teach well than I do. I put a ridiculous amount of pressure on myself in every aspect of my life, but especially this one. But I know that in a group context, I can't make everything right for everyone all the time. That's just not possible. And and I want to do it, but I can't do it. Yeah. And if someone expects that of me, they're expecting something that is not possible to provide in that environment. Right, right. You know, and so I try to make that clear. As a teacher, I try to make that clear that this is a learning process. And a learning process is a mutual responsibility. Yeah, yeah. So Skater Joe, you're doing a great job. Absolutely. Skater I mean, Joe. really, that's a great question. It's a yeah, it's yeah, a yeah. really thoughtful question. And so. because it gets to so many layers, right? It yeah. really gets to, and I think that one of the layers it gets to is as a yoga teacher is our insecurity of are we doing enough? Sure. And then as this is a person in this world, like, are we doing enough? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's an impossible setup. Yeah. And we all do it to ourselves. Yep. Boo-hoo. Put some tape on it. Let's go do some yoga practice. (laughs) Thanks, Jason. Hey. We'll talk to you soon. Sounds good. You know where to find me. (laughs) Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the episode with Jason. It's been great uh, getting your questions and we'll continue to work through them in various ways and I'll just keep you posted. You can sign up for our newsletter. I always put all new content in there. Uh, You can sign up for our newsletter on our website, jasonyoga.com. And I just wanted to remind the teachers out there that Jason offers three-day renewal programs around the country that are great for teachers who are already teaching. And I believe he's got a few spots left in the second and third module of his 300-hour program in San Francisco this year. You can find all of the dates and places that he will be on our website at jasonyoga.com slash schedule. And I will also put some teaching blog posts up on the show notes page today. He's written so many great things over the year, and I'll just put them all in one place. So that is at yogalandpodcast.com slash episode 37. Thanks for listening. Share the love. If you love this podcast, email it to a friend or share it on social media. It's so, so, so helpful. It's also helpful if you happen to be able to leave an iTunes review. Okay, everyone, until next week, enjoy your practice. Tonight.